0: Hi, I'm Shelley, and I'm Cam, and this is Translating ADHD. On last week's episode, we expanded on this metaphor that we've been working with, and we got into why change is so hard with ADHD. Today, we're going to talk about applying that metaphor, how to start to create change, how to be more successful. Cam, you want to say more about that?
1: Yes, uh, happy to, Shelley, And um, I think that last two episodes, we got a little, little heady there, right? Um, I think that metaphors work for some people and not all people, but we wanted to illustrate how challenging it is to create change when you have ADHD on board. And so today, looking at ways to Move into application, right? What to do with this metaphor that we uh, laid out in the last two episodes. So, if you recall, the metaphor was illustrated this cause and effect dynamic with ADHD and how ADHD kind of keeps us uh, down in effect, right? In these deep places, uh, dark, deep, and sort of a sticky, right? Like boggy places. And also, it illustrated how everyone's experience of ADHD is so different that people will identify with certain things, but not all things. I think this is one of the reasons why the the myth of whether ADHD is real is propagated because it's so hard to pin down because it manifests in so many different ways. But if you come back to causation, it really comes back to that glitchy executive function area it's appreciating the whole process of these four areas the glitchy executive function area this area of causation and then the land of effect and that big wall that impedes going from effect to cause that we're calling the lunch counter and today excuse me today we're going to be doing what i call lunch counter work right to to saddle up to that lunch counter and what can we do effectively there to help us be more successful with our ADHD and where I'd like to go is I'd like to talk about a negative self-talk. I think Ooh. that, um, yeah, negative self-talk is it's really ubiquitous with ADHD. I think that most people, uh, not all, but most people who have ADHD know what we're talking about. This sort of insidious voice that will be very critical of us. I think that one thing that distinguishes people with ADHD is that we can be extremely more critical of ourselves than others would ever be.
0: Absolutely. And yeah. it's so interesting because I also think that we tend to be more empathetic towards others while being so critical to ourselves.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting paradox. And I think that ADHD is, it's a, it's a, a, a challenge of, of paradox or irony in that case. That's a great point. So to just to zoom out a little bit, why is negative self-talk relevant here? Language is relevant, stories and narrative are relevant. And there's a really big connection between our behaviors, what we do and what we intend to do, and the beliefs that we create or are created to drive that behavior. Well, ADHD can really in some ways distort our thinking, our perception of reality and our own reality to skew our beliefs into thinking certain ways. And negative self-talk is one is is a takes up a big category there of kind of what we're telling ourselves. And when you think about it, so ADHD is really a challenge around inconsistent performance. So remember this, that the negative, the negative signals are the most intense signals in our brain. So what we focus on is we focus on all the stuff that we haven't done or all the stuff that we haven't been successful with. That's what the human brain will do. And with our ability to hyperfocus with circular thinking, we're really going to zoom in on that and then just lay it on extra heavy with that inner critic voice. Right. The feeling alone is not just at work, right, with guilt and shame and feeling poorly, our, our own self-concept. Right. Let's just add a little side order of some audacious negative self talk. And I've heard from my clients over the years just some just really rough and tough stuff that they tell themselves. I like to say you know, taking yourself back behind the woodshed. Right. No one's going to stop you uh, but yourself there.
0: I'm borrowing that, by the way. That's awesome. Taking yourself behind the woodshed. And I'm going to add to what you said because you're right. Our clients can be absolutely terrible to themselves. But the interesting thing is they often don't realize how terrible they are being until we either repeat what they have said or otherwise call them out on it. It's like so innate that they don't even realize what it sounds like.
1: Right. Well, there's comfort in the familiar. Yeah. Right. And it's a, uh, it's again, back in our, our picture of that we are, Shelley said it was okay that we post this, my drawing, right? But imagine one of these sort of deep valleys, dark places, um, they become familiar, Right. You talk about the um, Hoth ice, you know, the ice, the, the big doors on Hoth, you know, you're familiar with that place, right? You've, you've decorated it with, with certain uh, stenciled language there, right? To yeah. to sort of reinforce uh, this this sense of self, which is not necessarily positive. I think also that the brain and the mind, a, a helpful Helpful first step here. And and you said, yes, when they're called out on that language. And I think that a coach can do that, someone else can do that, right? And you can do it yourself, is starting to just again, that keen observer that we've talked about in past episodes, to step back and really check in on that language. And is it fair? Right? Is this how, as you said, we can be really compassionate and helpful to others? And uh, um, empathetic, resourceful, and yet when it comes to ourselves, we can be like my fifth grade teacher, right? Mrs. Bittner. (laughs) (laughs) Harsh and cruel. Um, Wow. Wow. There's there's stories there. There's there's stories there. So today we're going to look at sort of the connection between negative self-talk and our metaphor and how we can start to shift our thinking there and to shift our thinking is to start to shift that narrative so today it's sort of a doing some lunch counter work in episode 10 i believe we started to talk about what's at the lunch counter right that this strengths and challenges reframe chart was there this level one symptoms of adhd that again we, we refer to in uh, episode 10 so so these level one symptoms right that we list out the challenges and and uh, the strengths and challenges reframe chart reframing is an excellent way to work with negative self-talk right to take these challenges and start to tweak that and reframe and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit but again this is what we're going to be doing today is sort of getting you know how do we get up to this lunch counter i think that many of you are sort of like you know cam where's the c4 i just want to blow through this this lunch counter wall and get to cause well i think that there's some opportunities at the lunch counter right and it's better there than it is down in these deep dark places in effect where or Again, I think in my picture, we've got to put a woodshed there, right, to sort of uh, where we take ourselves. I want to go back to what I said about how the brain and the mind, distinguishing those can be very helpful here, right? Just remember that we've talked about distinguishing as one of these skills to develop awareness and understanding. So distinguishing that your brain is really seeking stimulus. It's seeking the big signal, and it really doesn't distinguish the negative signal from the positive signal. So that negative self-talk is actually creating focus and attention. And the brain is almost like, hey, this is good, but the mind is getting beat up, right? So there's an incentive for staying in effect. It's like, again, that familiar place that's comfortable, but not necessarily good, right? Or beneficial.
0: Absolutely. So,
1: I'm going to use a, an example. We, we talk about examples from our from our own experience, and just again the power of language, and how it can be so damaging. I've said this before, but I'll I'll say it again. In this, with respect to addressing negative self talk, right? so remember that I was a school teacher for my first 13 years of uh, coming out of college, after I worked at NASA as a research assistant, but that was very brief. And it wasn't until I got to a school where the staff was so impressive and the students were so impressive. This was a school that was nestled in the woods between uh, two excellent research universities. And so most of the parents were associated with either unc or duke um, in some way and their children were high achieving uh, going to all different kinds of colleges after graduation and then the the staff at this school was just remarkable instead of me thinking this is a remarkable group of people where i went to On my course of not understanding why I wasn't being successful, I went to this very negative and damaging place. And sort of this, um, because I wasn't being successful and I didn't understand why I wasn't being successful. And mind you, I started to learn about my ADHD, but even with that diagnosis, I didn't still understand why I wasn't being successful. Right. So there's that sort of comparison canyon. Comparing myself to others and then thinking I am lesser than them in some way. Right. And that imposter syndrome starts to act up. And then the language that goes with that, right. In the sense of they must some, they must know something that I don't know. And the big one, Shelley was, when will they find me out? Yeah. Right? That was informing the middle years of working in this school was, when will they find me out? It almost would ratchet up to sort of a, a paranoia <laughs> state, right? But it had my attention thinking that, you know, other people are thinking things about me. And that's where my attention is of, again, this colorful imagination of they must be talking about me. And then that perseveration or rumination, right? Circular thinking, not being able to let go of that thought of something they're they're thinking about me and how I'm not showing up and not delivering. And like just simple stuff in the sense of me not grading papers and getting them back in a timely fashion. The kids were actually okay with that, but I wasn't. Right, didn't understand why I couldn't do that. And then I would go take it to the nth degree, right? To just really ratchet it up. And that inner critic would just start talking on my shoulder. Yeah, there you go again. There you go. So actually this voice developed a persona that became this, let's beat up cam. And as you said earlier, I wasn't aware of this. I was just in there right i didn't have a recognition of wow this is really having an impact on me negatively i was in this place of you know well i'm fully deserving of this and so every single day i would take myself to the woodshed right beating myself up heaping on that negative language again with the emotion of shame guilt and again, my, my my concept of self was pretty much in tatters. And, I, and it was me. I was the one that was doing the shredding, right? It wasn't anyone else. They were, again, asking for their homework or asking for reports or asking for me to do something. But it was me who was ratcheting that up.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how we can do that to ourselves ourselves. Very early on in my first business as a professional organizer, when a client would disappear, and that happens sometimes, right? Like committing to the process of change is hard. And when you are in the business of helping people create change, whether it be organizing or coaching, or for a while, I had a client who was a personal trainer who also had this challenge. When a client would disappear, I would spin up all of these stories about how it was entirely my fault. They didn't like me. They didn't want to work with me anymore. They hated me so much that they didn't even want to tell me that they didn't want to work with me anymore. They just disappeared. That's how terrible I was, right? Despite never once getting negative feedback from clients and often getting positive feedback from clients, I could spin up these awful awful stories, right? Off of nothing, off of not negative feedback, but no feedback. What is that? Why do we do that to ourselves?
1: That's a great question. I think that, and so this is why the metaphor is so helpful, right? Or Again, this, this relationship between cause and effect, executive function, and this lunch counter wall, right? So I, I do the same thing. Clients would commit, they would sign up, they'd pay me, and then they would disappear. And without that information, I would fill that void with a negative story. Well, I must have done something wrong. Right. So I think that this is a great way to kind of step up and get above this cause and effect, right? To get out of the sticky place is to kind of lift ourselves up, get above the tree line, and kind of consider what are those areas those 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 uh, machines in cause that are helping to create the scenario and i would say that imagination right that sort of uh, the very creative imagination we're creating these scenarios right very imaginative taking them out but we take them out to this negative place right they often end in a uh, i'm bad or uh, I failed, or it's my fault, right? So that's in causation, black and white thinking in the sense of absolutes, right? I, I always lose the client. Is that true? No. But in that situation, we convince ourselves that's the truth and then start beating ourselves up. Does that? Can do you think of anything else that would contribute to that in that situation for you?
0: I had one and I lost it. Give me a second.
1: Well, why don't I? I'll do mine then. Okay. Okay. Because if you take black and white thinking, you know, for me it's like, as I was reflecting on this with with my own kind of negative thinking, um, black and white thinking. That sort of again from my uh, picture, Cam's something related to Cam's idea generator is that prolific uh, imagination, right? Rumination or circular thinking. And then again, the connection between emotional regulation and ADD is just recent, right? It's in the last 10 years. And so realizing that when I have an intense feeling, it's really intense, right? Often it's a spike and then it drops. Um, And so that intense emotional response with that, and then let's, let's just heap on that language. That's quite a compelling group of characters they're going to keep me in effect but all of those are over in cause they're up on the slippery slopes right generating that black and white thinking the emotional regulation or dysregulation that's occurring there is happening in cause that imagination is again that prolific producing of ideas is up on the slopes i can't see that because there's that wall and so when I started to change toward my latter years of this job, realizing of like, well, first of it was like um, they're not firing me. so I must be doing something okay because they're not asking me to leave. So and realizing that as I was working there, I was starting to get develop my teacher chops, right of delivering good content. The management part was crap. I mean literally. It was, it was C minus, but the content and delivery was up there and developing that skill set. But as I was in there and that people were not kicking me out and also were very, in some ways, very supportive, I started to find my lunch counter seat. And so getting up to the lunch counter and, right, I had the diagnosis and I knew these level one symptoms and started to think about, like, distractible, easily bored, overly sensitive, procrastinate, right, those are words that they made sense in that time, but again, it's, we talked about it, it's from the outside, it's the practitioner's perspective, right, it's not necessarily on the inside, so when I started to look at that, and then reframe, to reframe that language of, Easily bored is really about being engaged and focused on areas of passion. Well, that was absolutely true, right? That they let me build a ropes course on campus and I became passionate about that and there was a small group of students who became passionate about that, right? And that was, again, wasn't so much that I was bored. It was more about that, I was really, I had, um, William Dodson's take on an interest based attention system. That's a reframing. And as I reframe here, what I'm doing is I'm starting to loosen up that black and white thinking, right? That when we do our lunch counter work and start to make room for something other than this negative thing, that we can actually start to have impact on those slippery slopes up in causation. And when we do that, then effect isn't so dark and sticky.
0: Absolutely. I told a story back in episode eight about the way that I prepare presentations. And I do presentations fairly often these days, but obviously that was a buildup over time. And early on in my speaking career, as it were, I would delay, delay, delay until the last second and sit down in a dead panic and put a talk together. And it would always come together just fine, right? So what was I freaking out about? Well, A, I figured out that the delay wasn't the issue, right? I outline my talks in my head as soon as I know that I'm booked for a gig. So I can put it together at the last minute and it will be good. That's not the issue. The issue was the self-talk that went with it, right? The guilt and shame of, I should work on this sooner, right? It's not normal to wait until a couple of days before a major speaking engagement to put slides together. Who am I to even stand up in front of an audience and talk on this topic? Do I know enough, right? do i belong here do should i even be doing this career like really spiraling out like nah i don't know just and you know a real fear what if it's not good what if people don't like it what if the audience isn't engaged what if people disagree with the points that i'm trying to make right so you have this fear you have this imposter syndrome You have this guilt and shame. Oh, and Cam, you have your idea generator. I have the perfectionist. And the perfectionist is a freaking jerk. But she's there, right? So, oh, it has to be just so, so that, you know, I feel like I have to make my slides look just so, and they have to be formatted slide to slide exactly to like the micro centimeter everything has to line up just so because people notice that right people notice if your your words move a centimeter from slide to slide and they're judging you for that right no right <laughs> no they're not well,
1: so there's the paradox of ADHD at play is that for a creative bunch that perfectionism that comes into play i think that that is a big player here in the sense of we will sort of in our minds, we will determine what success is. And success is this, it's almost, we we build a frame around it. that's like reinforced in, in reinforced concrete, right? It's this very specific outcome. And if we don't hit that very specific outcome, then somehow it's a failure, right? So that perfectionism is connected to that black and white thinking, right? That what we do is we see we 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 view the world in one hundred percent or zero percent. Right? We don't. This is connected to the challenges around prioritization. What is prioritization? Prioritization is the ability to see in grayscale, right? To sort of put something in front of something else, right? What is number one? What is number two? What is number three? And so that can't work if you just see in one hundred percent. And so starting to kind of look at how perfection comes in and how your negative self-talk works with that, you can start to dismantle that fairy tale because that is a fairy tale, right? Perfectionism, what we'll do is we'll take something like excellence and we'll swap it out for perfectionism. Excellence is good. Excellence is a great objective perfectionism doesn't exist and yet we try to you know perpetuate it
0: yeah perfectionism can be really sneaky too i have a client who came to me initially for some work-related issues and that's primarily what we've been working on and she's being very successful there and a couple of weeks ago she shifted our focus to some things at home and wanted to work on organizing her kitchen And man, did we run into a wall. I mean, a wall. We came back to this topic two, three, four times and got nowhere, right? And what we ultimately figured out was that this client was mourning the fact that she wasn't able to remodel her kitchen because her life situation changed right at the time. She had already made plans and hired a designer and was ready to go and then her life situation changed right and but she still had that image of the perfect kitchen in her mind because when we really started breaking down what needs organizing there wasn't that much to do there really wasn't but it was that image in her mind of the perfect kitchen that was preventing her from doing anything at all and she didn't even realize it it was hidden right.
1: Right, and when we look at the, per- the perfect kitchen or you know, the, the perfect job performance, we're getting into areas like expectation. And that's, again, an area that's we're going to be looking at in the future um, of managing expectations, uh, managing roles and effective roles. The other thing is I think that there might be some folks – listening who are thinking well i don't hear i you know my my negative when i go to the woodshed there's no language i'm not hearing something and just i recall a conversation with a client where we talked about negative self-talk and whether it was an issue he said no initially and yet there was lots of evidence for for it and so i think that again some of those sort of deep deep valleys where you can reside right in this negative place, negative feelings, well, there is no language. And this is something that came to light in preparation for one of my talks at, uh, at the um, ADHD conference in Philadelphia and the talk I did with Tamara Rozier and how in our emotional brain, in the deepest parts, especially around like fight and flight, is that there's no language there. There is no language, Um, it's all feeling. And so getting to the lunch counter is kind of making that journey, maybe not having the language yet, but this is why this reframe chart is so helpful because if you pull this up and start to look at it, it's gonna give you some language, right? Provide you with some language and to start to consider some alternatives. And this is the interesting thing is that when you start to put language to those feelings, you're actually starting to move the signal out of the deep parts of the emotional brain. And this is the whole idea of our work here is to understand, to own, and to translate ADHD, we have to move the signal out of the the deepest recesses of the emotional brain where we tend to fall because... This is where urgency lives. When we procrastinate to the last moment, we elicit that adrenaline response to get that dopamine to pull the trigger. So all of us typically with ADHD are very comfortable with the emotional part of the brain because that's what we use to motivate for task.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing, listener. We're not, again, we're not trying to solve this or cure it right? Those deep recesses are always going to be there. But when you start to be able to name what's happening, to understand what's happening, you can shift the signal more quickly because you're aware that it's not real. And sometimes the emotional brain still wins. I was telling Cam before we hit record... (laughs) about Friday and I'm not I'm not going to relay the story right now but my emotional brain won big time right and that happens but the difference is my emotional brain won on Friday and on Saturday I was okay whereas previously if my emotional brain won that hard that I was I was having a panic attack it won hard previously if my emotional brain won that hard it would have been days or weeks behind those hoth doors right so it's not that it's ever going to go away but once you know it and you're aware of it and you're aware of what's real and what's not real it becomes easier to shift back out to shift that signal and to not let it become something that defines long periods of time in your life
1: and this is where Shelly and I are, are come from the same school with respect to managing ADHD we're never going to get rid of it we're never going to get rid of Uh, the intense emotional response what happens is it's the resilience it's the it's the resilience element in the sense of to have that response because you can't avoid life right life is going to throw you curveballs all the time and so it's being able to be uh, in a sense ready for that and adapting to it and then getting back to your your stance if you will quicker
0: Yeah. And I actually want to throw in a reframe too around the emotional brain itself, because it is a challenge and it can be difficult and it can be frustrating. But on the other side, what do you have? You have passion. My business partner, who is a neurotypical, once told me. So before I tell you what she told me, let me tell you, let me give you the context. I am a massive fan of the jam band fish in the summers. You will find me on fish tour as often as my schedule allows. And one day out of the clear blue nowhere, she said to me, I wish that I was as passionate about anything as you are about fish. And that was such a almost jarring statement to me because I'm very passionate about fish. But I've got several other things that I'm also that passionate about. Right. So even the emotional brain that can sometimes really do a number on us and take us out to the woodshed can be a real asset.
1: Yeah, this goes back to episode eight with embracing your unique brain wiring. Right. I really appreciate that point in the sense of we're not saying that the emotional brain is bad. It just is. And that intensity. That emotional intensity, uh, if you have it, because I have clients who don't have that. But if you do, it's to reframe it into the sense of passion, interest, and then leveraging that in your work. And so um, I'm passionate about educating people about ADHD. I'm passionate about training coaches, because I know that I can have a bigger impact training coaches than I can working with individual clients right i do work with individual clients but when i work with coaches i know that they're going to be impacting a hundredfold right yeah. and that's about like creating change and having that positive impact i'm absolutely passionate about that but i couldn't be passionate about that right when i had that gremlin or that inner critic always kind of voicing off and now, as I do my lunch counter work and sort of, again, recognize his voice, it's like, oh, there you are, buddy. What do you have to say? Right? It's not so intensely, it's not so emotionally laden. <clears throat> it's just words. And, you know, okay, so he's sitting on at my board table and he's one of many advisors. But now I've sort of identified other advisors and we can bring this into another podcast of identifying resources or voices to counter that, that negative inner critic. But just to sort of call him out, I, I ask him to go do some fact-finding. He really struggles with that.
0: Yeah, I like that. I challenge my clients with that too, right? Sometimes just repeating what they've said when they're taking themselves out to the woodshed during a call, followed by the question, is that what you really believe? Or is that really true, right? Never once had a client say, yes. Yes, that is absolutely true. That's absolutely what I believe, right? Usually they go, huh, I just said that? Wow, Wow. that sounds a lot worse coming out of your mouth than it does out of mine. Right, exactly.
1: So I think in in bringing this to a close, I, I wanna go global for a second. I know that i referred to a rope bridge metaphor before i think that um and we're going to bring the the rope bridge in into a future uh, episode there's a societal uh, element at work here too right especially those of us in north america and the united states there's a focus on performance we are overly focused on performance and so many people and it's one of the reasons why they come to coaching, but it's this, they're focused on all the stuff they're not doing. Yeah. Um, the rope bridge use this sort of, the rope bridge part is the actual activity part. And the rope bridge is, bridge is attached to outcomes and resources, right, as the anchor points. But clients, when they're in this state of, again, a lot of negative self-talk, they're focused on kind of and and hanging out in the middle of this rope bridge, unable to move forward and unable to move backwards. Right. And focused on all the stuff that's not happening. So to again back up a little bit from that, recognize that you're not all, you're not just your performance. You're not just the last thing you did or didn't do. Starting to distinguish what you do from who you are and starting to put up a a little protective glass there between your sense of self and that inner critic can be a a good first move. And then finding a path. Sort of, First couple of times it's going to be like bushwhacking with machete, find that path to the lunch counter, get up there and start to reframe, to give your feelings some words and to start to reframe that language. This is also something that you can do with someone else. Right? If there's someone who's in your corner and supportive of you to discuss with them the, this language, right, these stories, this narrative, journaling is another excellent practice right? to put pen to paper and get that, those words down on paper and out of your brain. And when you get it out of your brain, all of a sudden, it doesn't hold the power that it had in your brain. So journaling, talking with others, but starting to, again, distinguish that, that narrative as what it is, which is negative self-talk, identifying it, labeling it, tagging it, and then kind of reflecting on it from a distance, from a healthy perspective.
0: Yeah. And if you make this a practice, and that's the thing, is it will require practice but if you start working on becoming aware of when you're in negative self-talk and practicing reframing or retelling the scenario without the Mm -hmm. negative language you will get better at it and it will start to become innate this is something that i see in my clients when we first start working together negative self-talk is very present and i Name it, I point it out to my clients. I ask them to tell the story again, right? What I notice is a few months down the road, they naturally do it themselves, right? They'll tell me a story in the negative voice and they'll go, Oh, wait, nope. Let me, oops, let me do it again, right? Just without even thinking, because they have practiced that skill. And they now notice when they're in that place. They hear the words coming out of their mouth, and they know that those words are not true. And they are able to stop without my help and reframe and get out of that place.
1: Yeah, I want to add one more piece here that is so important, is that sometimes it's hard to get out of those deep places by yourself. Mm -hmm. And that um, in a previous episode, we talked about doing your other work, right? Right. To do your other work in the sense of doing the emotional work, that working with a therapist—again, a therapist who understands that there's ADHD at play—but to do that work with a professional, um, that's okay. Right? There's, I think that there's, uh, again, there's negative self-talk around doing the work. Right? We have the sense of we need to. We have this big focus on self-reliance, people right? Self-reliance is don't ask for help. You know, I made this problem, I got to fix it. And that was another big part for me was I realized that there were a lot of people around me who wanted me to be successful. And when I started to accept that was when big changes started to occur for me. And when the negative self-talk just didn't hold the power that it had. So don't let the negative self-talk actually get in the way of your first step to move in in, in the direction of the lunch counter and starting to reframe. Right, um, help can come in lots of different forms, and sometimes those sticky places can be super sticky. And that seeking out doing work with a professional can be extremely helpful and important.
0: Well said, and you kind of gave me goosebumps because I could say the exact same thing once i realized how many people around me truly wanted me to be successful and the resources that i had everything and i mean everything began to change
1: some of those people are listening right now and so you know who you are thank you
0: and we love you thank you we do love you yeah i think that is a great place for us to wrap up for today if you like what we're doing here, you can help us out by leaving a review on wherever you listen to the podcast. If you have feedback for us, we would love to hear it. You can hit us up on the website translatingadhd.com via the contact form or on Twitter at translatingadhd. In the meantime until next week, I'm Shelley and I'm Cam and this was Translating ADHD. Thanks for listening.